Today on Podcast by the Bay, current candidate for Lieutenant Governor of California, Jeff Bleich, discussing why he wants to run for the office of Lieutenant Governor. Uh, what I bring to the table in terms of networks and the capacity to actually drive things to a decision and get stuff done. Uh, it's the reason why President Obama asked me to be his special counsel at the White House and be his U.S. ambassador in Australia and a number of other roles over the course of my life as president of the state bar. Uh, not because I'm the tallest person or the most intimidating, but because I actually like to get stuff done and I work hard and I uh, accomplish things. And also about solutions. Solutions about transportation, housing, homelessness, and education. We've had the most significant uh, technological revolution in at least 100 years and possibly in human history in these last 20 or 30 years, and we're still teaching people as if we're in the 1950s or 1960s. And so we have to fundamentally change. And I think you're exactly right that trade schools are one of the keys to that. All coming up on this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another episode of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us, and we thank you for downloading the show. And so today, we're going to get back to our election coverage for the primary on June 5th. And so today, we're going to feature another candidate for lieutenant governor, and this is Jeff Bleich. So, Patrick, you got to meet Jeff. You got to speak with him. You talked with him about some of the issues. Can you tell the audience a little bit about Jeff? Well, Jeff um, is a was born in 1961. Uh, he's an American lawyer. He was a diplomat from California. He's currently a partner in Denton's law firm, which they do in cyber security. Um, before that, when in, in my conversation when I met with him at his house, he did a lot of civil rights too, uh, just like Ellen. He was fighting for the people. Uh, in President Obama's, he joined the White House staff in 2009 as a legal counsel to the president. Was nominated to the United States as an ambassador to Australia. Uh, he was born in, in Germany, um, but in a U.S. Uh, 98th Army Hospital in Germany. And his father was a dentist, okay? And his father, that was during the Vietnam War era, his father quit the U.S. Army because he was protesting the war. He has a Bachelor's of Art, 1983, in political science. Um, and he, uh, he, he's a Harvard Bleich, went to John F. Kennedy School of Government and in 1986 graduated with a master's in public policy. And in 1989, he received from the University of California in Berkeley School of Law at JD. Uh, he, he was a law clerk for uh, United States Courts of Appeal in the District of Columbia from 1989 to 1990. He also um, was a clerk for Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist, Supreme Court of the United States from 1991 to 1990, 1990 to 1991. He was a legal assistant to Joe Howard Holtz uh, of the Iran United States Claims Tribunal in, in The Hague in 1991-92. He's got a vast thing. But, you know, um, talking with him, he's a very warm guy. He's innovative. His education is Amherst College with BA, Harvard uh, with his master's, University of California in Berkeley with his JD. 
Um, I spoke with him on homelessness. I spoke with him in the sanctuary city. I spoke with him about college education. I spoke with him about transportation, about housing. I spoke about innovative ideas. This man is willing to listen. He's willing to listen and bring it forth to the people. He was talking about the infrastructure. We talked about the environment, the impact of all the housing that we're building, the impact with the transportation. He's passionate about that we need to get more organized, that we need to have a plan, and that we don't have plans for necessarily transportation to collaborate with the surrounding counties. As you know, we have some 152 counties, or maybe it's 156. I might be off by a few. But he is passionate about getting people to the table to have solutions. So I'm excited to have that opportunity for him, and I think he's a great candidate. He's got a great resume. Um, and I'm looking forward to you listening to that out there in podcast, by the way. I challenged him to listen to our Dave Tanner. Dave Tanner is a, is a council person in the city of Woodside or the town of Woodside. He's got an innovative idea with a, with a, uh, a rapid transit system or a monorail system off 380 near the Hillsdale Shopping Center. And when I spoke to uh, Jeff, he was excited to hear about that. He's going to go go further and listen to our podcast by the bay. Without further ado, I want you to listen to um, Jeffrey Bleich running for lieutenant governor. Well said, Patrick. And so with that, I think we're going to go ahead and get to the Jeff Bleich interview I think it's a wonderful opportunity to hear Jeff. I think we're looking forward. We're excited to actually present Jeff Bleich. I I think just the fact that we have great candidates, people who bring a vast realm of experience. Uh, This role is currently filled by uh, Gavin Newsom, which everybody knows. And so this is is kind of a great opportunity for a number of candidates. I think there's a great pool. Um, for the lieutenant governor position. So we are pleased here at Podcast by the Bay to present Jeff Bleich and really hear his vision for California and for some of his beliefs and how he views some of the issues. And I think that we definitely appreciate him taking the time to speak with Podcast by the Bay because that's what we're about here at Podcast by the Bay, listening to people that are talking solutions, that are really running for office, that really want to help uh, be a part of the change. So that's what we're doing here at Podcast by the Bay. We're trying to bring these people to the front to really present to the audience of really what's happening out there in our community, in our society, and really for a change for a better place. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and get to the Jeff Bleich interview. And yeah, if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please reach out to us at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay is our handle, and also on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash podcast by the Bay. Well, thanks again, folks, and we definitely appreciate you being with us, and we know you're going to enjoy our exclusive interview with uh, Jeff Bleich. So with that, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Welcome to Podcast by the Bay. I have the honor of interviewing Jeff Bleich. Jeff Bleich uh, lives in Piedmont, California. He's also a candidate for lieutenant governor for the state of California. We welcome you to Podcast by the Bay, Jeff. And for our audience, can you give us a little background about yourself? Um, How'd you get to California? Well, um, I was actually born on an army base in uh, Germany. My dad was in the military and he, uh, he opposed the Vietnam War. And so left the service and he found uh, the worst house in the best school district that he and my mom could afford. And that was uh, that was my start. I went to school back east and then uh, met my wife there. We, uh, we we put each other through grad school and then we just didn't have any money left. I'd maxed out on my loans and came to California because um, it was Really, the only place where I could afford to go to law school was UC. Well, you know, I've got a couple questions before we go on. I, you know, I noticed you were at an army uh, hospital in Germany, West <laughs> yeah. Germany. And for the audience, I have a part of the Berlin Wall. I don't, I'm going to tell you, I got it actually <laughs> at, a, at a blackjack game at Harvey's a long time ago. So you, you won part of the Berlin Wall? Part of the Berlin <laughs> Wall. At least they told me it was authentic. Um, I had a curious question for you. You know, my mother was uh, born in Connecticut and... Uh, uh, my grandfather was a career man in the Coast Guard. What, what part of Connecticut are you from originally? Uh, well, we moved to the central Connecticut, Hartford. Okay. Yeah, yeah my mom was in uh, New London, Connecticut, which yeah. is the uh, Whalers, 
Whalers town there too. So it was the only professional sports team we had back there. So wow, um, <laughs> wow, so, it's an interesting town. It really is. And, it is. And, well, anyway, we welcome you to California. So you, you've got your, you went to law school out here in California, mm-hmm. right? And you went yep. to, uh, what law school did you attend? I went to Berkeley. Berkeley, okay. Um, now, how did you, you know, the, the big question for the audience is, how did you get into politics? Why politics? You obviously have a legal education. You have a bachelor's in political science. You have a master's um, in, in education from the uh, university, or John F. Kennedy University. Is that correct? Um, from the Kennedy School at Harvard, yeah. Okay, Kennedy School of Harvard, that's great. And you know, you also talked about the Vietnam War. I was one of the fortunate ones that, uh, I got a draft card, but my draft card was 1A. My draft number was 88, but Richard Nixon ended the draft. So for, for some reason, I didn't have to do that. I admire that your dad stood up for what What position in the United States Army did your dad hold? Uh, he was a dentist. He was a dentist, yeah. wow, yeah. wow. So he was a career man in the service in the United States Army. How long was he in the service there? Well, I don't remember exactly how long. He was there the, uh, before I was born, and then uh, we left, I guess, when I was about five. Okay. Let's go back and talk about um, how you got in politics. What was the magic age that you said you wanted to devote your life to public service, which if we take a look at your resume, you're, you're definitely a public servant and have served well. Well, I'd actually avoided politics. I mean, I've always tried to serve in different ways, but uh, I think like a lot of us, I had that that sense that getting involved in politics, running for office, it was just a little too, um, a little unpleasant. You know, that there are a lot of phony people, there's a lot of money involved, and it just wasn't where I wanted to spend my time. And so I tried to serve in other ways. I was uh, I chaired the California State University Board of Trustees. I was uh, president of the state bar. Uh, I did a lot of pro bono work to help people in the state of California. Uh, various cases, the Prop 187 case, I fought that uh, successfully in court. I fought uh, Ted Cruz in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. I took on uh, a number of other high-profile cases, including Don't Ask, Don't Tell, on behalf of the LGBT um, service member community. Um, so I was I was serving in that way. Well, I'm impressed. You know, I, I, I'm kind of a historian. I'm, I'm impressed that you went to John F. Kennedy uh, Graduate School and got your master's in public policy. I'm a Kennedy collector. But, you know, we're, we're coming up. You were born in 1961. And in 1968, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Did that have any impact on your life? You were quite young at that time. You were born in 61. You were only seven. Did you have any reaction to uh, Robert Kennedy being assassinated? Yeah, no, it, it had a very dramatic impact on my life. In fact, you know, you, you'll remember um, that it, it, it was in relatively short order that both um, Bobby Kennedy uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. Were, were both assassinated. It was at a very impressionable age. I remember the images of um, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy's body in Los Angeles. Uh, after he'd been shot. And um, I think it's part of what caused me to focus as much as I have on violence. I've been focused on gun violence uh, virtually my entire career. In fact, I I chaired President Clinton's Youth Violence Commission after Columbine. Well, I encourage you, and I read your background on that. We had podcasts by the Bay. I did a town center on gun violence, and we encourage you to listen to it. Mm. And we brought a, a different group of people to think. We brought some techie people. Uh, into the discussion, yeah. and they came up with some one idea that they came up with. They said, "You know, yeah, you have nine one one, you have four one one. Why not have a number for somebody that might be on edge, or somebody could call and say, you know, I think Bill's on edge, mm-hmm. or Alice.' So, so that I thought was kind of innovative. I hope you listened to that. Um, so no, I think that's you- one of the one of the solutions is making it more available for people to get help when they're. Um, when they're troubled, mm-hmm. um, whether they're thinking of harming themselves or others. Uh, I think another technological ad- advance would be micro-stamping bullets. Another thing that technologists have come up with is palm locks, grips on guns, so that um, someone else can't use a weapon if, they, if it isn't registered to them, if they haven't passed a background check. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that we could do technologically to reduce gun violence in this, in this country. Uh, so I'm glad that you, you hosted that and that you're bringing smart people together. I think that's one of the things people are looking for. Whatever we've been doing for the last 20 years hasn't been working. 
So we need to do something new. And that's part of what compelled me to abandon my longstanding aversion to running for office and decide to run now. Well, why don't we go into another topic? I think we're, California prides itself on um, a lot of gun control, and we probably have avoided a lot of problems with the, the ban on assault rifles and automatic weapons. So what do you think the state of California can do to improve um, uh, protection for its citizens? Is there anything else besides... I like your ideas here with marking the bullets and stuff like that. One of the things, the background check seems to be a real, rather challenging thing for us right now. How can we improve it in this Cal- in California? Well, I know in Alameda County, we've made it much more difficult for uh, there to be gun shows. And if there are gun shows, you have to be fully licensed um, and you can't receive a weapon until 10 days after. Um, I think you need to do that county by county and require those same sorts of requirements so that you effectively close the gun show loophole, again, county by county here in California. You can do things like there are... there. There are people who make their own guns to avoid uh, having background checks. You can put the same restrictions on gun kits. There are ways in which you can increase the um, uh, the the number of people who can make referrals about individuals who may be a danger to themselves or others who already have been uh, allowed to obtain a weapon so that the weapon can be taken away from them temporarily. So there are things that we can improve on here in California uh, that could be a model for the rest of the country. I don't think we're I don't think we're done with our innovating. Okay, one of the challenges that we have in the and, and I kind of paragraphed it back to when Ronald Reagan was mm. governor in the state of California and when he basically closed all of the hospitals, the people that were mentally ill. Yeah. And as we all know we had the tragedies of Lynette Fromm, Juan Corona on the streets. What can we do in regards to mental health? Because there seems to be a large mental health issue, not only for these yeah. people that are committing these atrocities, but just for society as a rule, especially in our schools. Yeah. What can we do to be more aggressive in that area? Yeah, well, let's, let's take a big step back on that, because I think you're exactly right. It started in the 60s, uh, and the promise had been that we would eliminate those uh, mental health facilities and replace them with much better community treatment centers. In fact, we never did that. Um, what we've replaced them with are the two most expensive and least effective ways of dealing with mental health challenges. First are prisons. We have nine times as many people being treated for mental health problems in our prisons as in our mental health facilities. And the other place where we do it is on the streets with police and with um, trauma medics. And that is extraordinarily costly and you get terrible results. If how, we, do we, how do we, you know, I come from a probation yeah. officer background. How do we change that? An example, in San Quentin, we have approximately 2,200 inmates. And out of the 2,200 inmates, we probably only have maybe a couple hundred of them actually getting rehabilitation. So the way that the present system works, and I want to hear your innovative yeah. ideas, not my ideas. How can we, how can we change that process? Because we've got the prison guards that are making a lot of money. We've got prison unions. We have more people in the state of California incarcerated than incarcerated in a lot of freer countries. What do you do? How do we tackle that? Yeah, I think you start first investing in uh, community treatment centers. If you've got mental health facilities that are really working facilities, and we've got 60 years of learning worldwide that we could take advantage of that we have not been uh, drawing upon here in California, then the cost of providing better mental health services in one of those facilities as compared to a prison is $20,000 instead of $70,000 per year per prisoner. So that's, that's the difference. We save $50,000 a year and we get better outcomes if we invest in those sorts of treatment centers. There are some other things we can do in the immediate term. Um, you know, we've got Prop 63 dollars that are not really going to the intended purpose of focusing on severe mental health challenges. They've been diverted into pet projects in different counties. And I think we need to have much more discipline in how those dollars are spent. And then finally, you know, we have some rules that make it difficult for us to deliver mental health services here in California. We've created a cottage industry in the state of Utah for wealthy Californians uh, whose, whose children suffer from anxiety, depression, substance uh, uh, abuse, or, or suicide ideation. Uh, and the only reason that that's occurring in Utah is because we haven't invested in it for non-affluent people. And 
we have rules that prohibit even even wealthy people who have choices all over the country from doing it here in California. So there there are things we can do in terms of our regulations, things we can do in spending current dollars that we already have. And then we've got to make a choice. You know, we 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 used to spend five times as much on higher education as we did on prisons. We now spend about the same on prisons as higher education. Well, that's we, a choice. I think one of the things that going across the country, especially with the gun violence in the schools, um, is most probably ninety nine point nine percent of those people um, all have some mental issues, and we haven't approached the school system. How can we do a better job in our in our current school system? Because as we noticed, a, a lot of these people that have committed the atrocities had some kind of connection to the school and had some mental issue. How do we how do we deliver and that's a big that's a big elephant to, to fit. How do we what would your approach be? Well, um, there are a number of things that we can do with respect to uh, reducing the risk of uh, mass shootings in schools. The main thing is getting rid of weapons that permit that. So assault weapons and also raising the the age for um, uh, long weapons for for young people to own those. So I think you can you can make a dent right there. Uh, I think having better mental health services in schools, and that's a matter again of priorities. Right now, uh, if you look at a lot of school districts, they're just being squeezed, and they're uh, where they where they tend to shed support first are among career counselors, among nurses and other kinds of mental health counselors. No, I'm, I'm going to talk not... Librarians. Not, I'm going to talk a little bit outside of the yeah. box here. And we've got that rainy day money. The governor's done such mm-hmm. a great job of putting it aside. Don't you think that would, taking some of that rainy day money right now and putting it into mental health in our schools would be a, a sound idea? Yeah, I think, look, there, there are resources that we can draw on in the state budget. But in terms of the rainy day fund, I, I just want to be clear. I think having a rainy day fund is a smart thing to do um, because it does rain. And we have been in a bull market. Uh, we're, we're heading towards a bear market at some point. And I've been in state government when we had, uh, when we had that during the global financial crisis. And if you don't have money put away, a lot of pain occurs. And it's very difficult to rebuild things uh, that, that, that are lost during those periods. And so you've got to find a way uh, to have some funds socked away. I I think there there are better ways of spending money and we could put more into our schools where it actually reaches services in the schools, mental health services in the schools. Um, But the the rainy day fund, you wouldn't rate it just for that. You'd want to make sure that there's a, uh, that there's a much bigger plan and that you do have a rainy day fund. Okay, let's go into another issue that's a challenge for the, for us all in the uh, surrounding 156 counties, and that's the homelessness. Um, the state of California is, is is trying to pioneer. It appears that the the, the statistics indicate that 20 percent of them are veterans uh, that are on the streets, and that they all have substance abuse. Um, and we also have with the with the wave of of housing going up uh, and students' cost of education going up. Then we have another wider, broad perspective of homeless people. You have people living in RVs. You have people living in their cars. Yeah. Um, what's your, your idea? I know um, in uh, Gavin Newsom, when he was uh, mayor in the uh, city of, of San Francisco, came up with a program to try to get the homeless off the street. And apparently that hasn't taken place yet. And I know I interviewed Angela Aliotto, who uh, is running for mayor in San Francisco and has an uphill battle. And she wants to bring the Gavin model back. Are you familiar with the Gavin Newsom model? And yeah. what would you think could be added to that to help solve part of the homeless dilemma that we have today? So I've, I've actually worked with homeless people. Uh, I, as I said, I've done a lot of pro bono service over the years, including working with homeless youth um, and with homeless people in San Francisco. And one thing you discover is um, they're not one one kind of person. There are you know, homeless people are like all people. They're, they they come into homeless different ways, and they have different backgrounds and different stories. And so you've got some people who have been entrenched homeless. Um, they have either because of mental health problems or because of you know, being abandoned by their families. 
um, financial issues that became overwhelming health issues. They've been homeless for a very long time, and it's very difficult for them to move back into a house situation because they just have, you know, have, have lost some basic life skills along the way living on the streets, and they've adapted to life on the streets. There are other people who are just situationally homeless. They, they were one paycheck, one health event, one rent hike away from losing their home, and they're in their cars now, but they're looking for um, some other alternative. Maybe they're sleeping on someone's couch. Maybe they're sleeping with a relative temporarily. But they're homeless, but they're, they're, they're still in a transition point. And there are a number of programs that could get them back into a house situation in a short period of time. And then you have people who are, um, you know, young people in colleges. I've been stunned by the homeless rates around our public universities, CSUs and UCs, of students. They can afford their tuition, but they can't afford to live in these cities. And so they're in shelters. They're, you know, sleeping in people's houses and shifting around. They're sleeping in well, How do we solve that? How yeah. do we solve that? What, well, what, would, what, would, what would you do? I know we're talking about one of the things is to have tuition-free school. Yeah. I know we're working now in the state passed some legislation I think for junior college for the first two years, if you yeah. if you take twelve units of college education, they will pay for your tuition, not your books. But right. we're, we're starting to go there. How, how can we embrace it in a, in, in a better way? Well, that's that's my point. Is that because people come into homelessness in different ways, and they're homeless um, for different reasons? Uh, we need to have more than just one size fits all model solution. So for students. Uh, there are a couple of ideas that I've that I've been working with with an advisory team that has studied the issue. And one thing is you can have um, loans that are provided to cover the cost of living while you're a student. And as long as you complete your education uh, within a timely period, you've got a fixed number of years to do it, then um, the loan is forgiven. Otherwise, you have to pay it back. Now, that creates a sense that students can actually go to a CSU and still uh, not have to not have to trade off tuition for food or tuition for lodging. They can focus on what we want them to focus on, which is learning and becoming better students. So we, we've, we've mapped that out and costed it out, and you can do that. It would, it would actually work very effectively here in, in California. There are, I have not been a, a advocating pure free tuition. I think community colleges should be free. I think that vocational uh, training and, and apprenticeships uh, to these two-year programs should be free. But a four-year education, the only way that you can make it work is if you make it debt-free, which is different from tuition-free. Uh, and it reflects the fact that um, working families, you know, to have them taxed at a much higher rate so that they could pay for a wealthy family's child to complete two more years of college uh, doesn't really work for every Californian. You're better off having like a public service year for everyone in a public university, and that could help allow them to graduate, uh, again, debt-free. But these uh, are the sorts an, of as ideas. As an educator myself, yeah. I kind of want to put a challenge out there that we, we, we're going to go back with an old buzzword, which was called trade school. Yeah. We, we, we don't have in our academic school system a trade school. Yeah. And there's a, lots of trades that could... I would encourage somebody back there in Sacramento to reinitiate to trade schools. Now, trade schools doesn't need that you need a college education to do some techies type of work too. Whether it's some limited programming, we we're in a need right now in the state of California with electricians, plumbers, yeah. carpenters, yeah. primarily because of the catastrophes you have. So what I can tell you, we got to push those legislators to bring the trade schools back into the schools because. We have a wealth of educated people in these fields that maybe somehow they would like to come back to the high schools or the grammar schools mm -hmm. or whatever and tell them you can be a carpenter, you can be an air conditioning expert. Yeah. But anyway, that, I'm just you're, passionate you're, look, about you're, that. You are singing my song. Uh, so here's, here, why, why do people run for lieutenant governor? Most people have no idea what the job even is. Uh, they think, you know, you're, you're waiting for the governor to leave town or, you know, uh, or something to happen to them so you become governor. Uh, that's not why I'm running. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad running. you brought no, no, no. Why don't you give I'm, us? But the, I'm running. Yeah. Why don't yeah. you give us the audience? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'm excited. Yeah. I forgot to ask you that question. Yeah. Tell people what the what the lieutenant governor does in the state of California, so they have a better idea. Good. And and I'll tie it back to education first. But 
the lieutenant governor sits on some of the most important boards and commissions that cover really three areas. The first is you're responsible for higher education and workforce preparation. You're really preparing people to be successful in this economy. You're on the UC Regents Board, you're on the Cal State University Board, you chair the California Economic Development Commission, and you serve on the State Job Training Coordinating Council. So if there's any job in California that should be working to restructure our education to match the new economy and prepare people for automation and artificial intelligence and all those changes, it would be lieutenant governor. You've got a whole environmental portfolio. And that environmental portfolio is the Land Commission, the Coastal Commission, the Oceans Protection Council. Again, uh, it was designed in our Constitution and in our laws for the lieutenant governor to have a major hand in ensuring uh, uh, the environmental security of the, of the state. And then there's this, as I said, there's an economic component, which is you chair the California Economic uh, Development Commission. You also serve on the emergency Council of the state, and both of those are ways in which you're trying to figure out what are the big challenges for the state, where do we deploy our money to make sure that we're protected against major cataclysmic events, and also how do we ensure that our economy is you know humming and continues to run and grow. So those are the those are the principal responsibilities. That's what drove me to run for this office. Uh, but I want to go back to education because you raised. I think the issue that we should all be talking about. Every time our economy has changed throughout California's history, we've changed our education system to make sure that uh, people are not only prepared to be uh, effective citizens, but that they can be competitive in the economy. You know, when we were a farming society, we had K through six, one room schoolhouse. Uh, industrial revolution comes along. We went to K through nine. We had the second industrial revolution about a hundred years ago. And that's when we added public high school and went K through 12. And then we had the post-World War II economic boom. And that's when we've invested in community colleges and in the Cal state system and the UC system with the California master plan for higher education. And then we've stopped. We've had the most significant uh, technological revolution in at least a hundred years and possibly in human history in these last 20 or 30 years. And we're still teaching people as if we're in the 1950s or 1960s. And so we have to fundamentally change. And I think you're exactly right that trade schools are one of the keys to that. Um, our, our automation is going to change the way we work. Um, the job that you're trained for, uh, in high school and college, may not last you a full lifetime. It may last you 10 or 12 years, and we need to be prepared for retraining uh, and, and the, the kind of skills that allow you to adapt. And there's nothing better than uh, apprenticeships and vocational training, the community colleges as well. These two-year programs are going to be vital. And I've spent a lot of time talking to people who are working on the jobs of the future in Silicon Valley to see which jobs are going to be around. It turns out Plumbers are going to be around for a long, long time. It's very hard to program anything to do all the complex tasks that a plumber does. And so trades are an extraordinarily good way to ensure you're going to be um, needed, viable, productive, and successful in the new economy. And we should be investing in those things that make, that make sense, not just following what we did 60 years ago. I, talk, I had an opportunity to interview... Um, Dave Jones is running for for, uh, for uh, attorney general, and he was saying that um, we have some issues um, um, with bail reform. Do you think we we're, we're going to we're going to resolve that, and, and we're going to have bail reform throughout the state? Yeah, I think we're going to have bail reform. I think there's a a sentiment among the public that it doesn't make sense for people to be in jail because they're poor. <laughs> They commit the same crime as someone else, but they just can't afford uh, to, to to pay the bail in the way that someone else would. Uh, that's that's antithetical to who we are as a people. The other thing is technology has made it so much easier for people to be tracked, use ankle bracelets and other things to ensure compliance with court hearings and other dates that you know we don't have to do things in an antiquated way. We, we really have failed to upgrade government 
uh, to reflect all these major technological changes. We expect every other sector of society to update, and yet we're still doing government in a very antiquated way in in way too many aspects. That's one of the things that attracts me, again, to being lieutenant governor of California. Okay, what about uh, our current administration back in Washington, without mentioning names, um, um, seems to be really adamant about building a wall or (laughs) not allowing us to have sanctuary cities. Uh, I know the state of California has been pretty adamant to protect the rights of of the Dreamers. And I'm assuming that would be still your philosophy, too? I've, I've worked with Dreamers. Um, for the last 30 years, you know, when I was chair of the California State University System, one of the presidents of the Student Association was a dreamer. Uh, and he was an uh, extraordinarily talented young man. His, his mother brought him here as a child and was married to a man who abused her and left her. And she was on a green card dependent on him. When her husband left her, she had nowhere to go. Uh, and so she remained in the country without documents. And so he, he had done, he had, he had had no choice in this. Uh, he never knew he wasn't an American citizen. Uh, he lived the American dream. You know, got, into, got into college. Not only did he end up being president of the student body there, but then he went on to, uh, uh, you know, I, I helped mentor him and he has gone on to graduate school. Now he's got a great job as an executive at Lyft. Just a terrific person. And and he did follow a path to citizenship and became a citizen a few years ago. I was there for his naturalization ceremony. Um, That's the American dream. And the thought that we would punish um, young people like that and deprive ourselves of their commitment and their belief in America or use them as pawns in a political battle, again, it's just a disgrace. So I, you know, I, I am I'm strongly in favor of supporting Dreamers, and so were Republicans and Democrats alike until this administration uh, came into power. Um, you know, we had protection for Dreamers, and he was the one who eliminated it. And I, I, I think to to his shame and discredit. I well, think in terms of uh, so I, I I I have strong feelings about Dreamers. I think immigration is a is an important issue for us to talk through as a society, but dreamers weren't controversial. Um, no one could say they did anything wrong, that they were at fault, uh, or that they have posed a danger to our country, quite the opposite. And so I think where we have heated agreement like that, we should go with it and not let politics stand in the way. Well, thank God we do live in California and we're the pioneering state, but uh, that doesn't always necessarily go across the country. I want to get into another area that seems to be just as as important as housing, and that's transportation. I want to talk a little bit about transportation. Yeah. Um, And first of all, I'm kind of looking at San Mateo County. I can't speak for all the counties in the state of California, but it's my experience that that, uh, we really don't have transit districts in our counties. Yeah. And one of the major problems, and I'm just going to use San Mateo County and Santa Clara County, we're all still bragging about the Clipper card. Well, the Clipper card is a nice thing, but it's not hooking up BART. It's not hooking up Caltrain. Um, when we talk public transportation, we're talking public transportation. They're fighting for federal and state dollars. So how in, in, in your vision of things can we work towards a direction that the state is willing to put the money in and that we have a kind of a transit district with all of the counties combining to put their money in, not just a super bullet train, because that's a nice idea to happen during the recession. Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it's not going to happen. Uh, and I know that's quite a costly ordeal. But right now, on our roads, we have problems with transportation. How, can we, how, can we, how would you like to attack that, uh, working back there in Sacramento, with your ability working with the transportation commissions and working with the governor? Yeah. No, I think, <laughs> as you said, it's... Uh, it's a very tough and large issue. It's, I remember there was a politician back in uh, D.C. who said it's one of those things, the more you chew on it, the bigger it gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what this is. I think that you have, so you have to take it on in small bites. Uh, one thing is we do have to increase public transportation. Second, uh, we have to uh, take advantage of new technologies. There are a couple that are particularly intriguing. 
One is autonomous vehicles. You can use those as a way of dramatically reducing traffic because they can sense each other. Uh, they don't they don't make all the mistakes that human drivers make, and so that gives you the opportunity to um, have people just effectively rent those vehicles um, instead of owning cars, uh, have them take them to the places they want to go in a much more efficient manner, and then park themselves. Uh, it would require a lot less parking space in cities, and it would reduce congestion uh, both on the road and in communities. So uh, there are opportunities to work with autonomous vehicles as, as a solution. A hyperloop is another interesting idea for long distances where you could go 700 miles an hour. It's all underground. Uh, so, again, you don't have to get the uh, expensive rights of ways and disruptions of communities that are associated with it if you can bore holes quickly and cheaply enough and uh, and the technology works. I think we want to keep an eye out for those. So you've got some long-term strategies with technology. You've got some short-term strategies with what you're describing, which is regional planning, where you increase um, uh, commitments to logical but up until now neglected uh, public transit opportunities, like connecting up BART with um, Caltrain and some of these other well, Jeff, let me ask you to, to um, we have an interview with Dave Tanner. Dave Tanner is a city council person in, in Woodside, and of course they don't have as many problems in Woodside as other cities. And he came up with an innovative idea, and we, yep. we have a, we have a uh, video on our website. And one of his ideas is to hook uh, 380 together out there near the Tamfran Shopping Center in San Bruno. Right. He's got a monorail system that, if and, and, and that if if it was uh, approached right, could drop off 30 to 40 percent of that those commuters off into their towns every 20 minutes. So Dave Tanner yeah. is his name. Yeah, uh, he, he's uh, we have an updated video. Yeah, uh, he's going to surrounding cities, uh, but it would be nice to see if we could hook, just like what you're alluding to, a more efficient system that can get people off the roads. Still, we have the problem in the state that over thirty to forty percent of the people on the road are single single cars, yeah. and we still have failed to to get them out of the cars. So, yeah. we'd encourage you to look at that, and yeah. uh, and I'm glad to see that you're looking outside of the box. Uh, we're also talking about. The connections and when you you listen to our part in the 14 part series of the mayors in the peninsula mm -hmm. we're talking about getting the ferries we're talking about getting hydroplane boats and stuff i think these words need to be taken into action but yeah. i think we have a way of solving it yeah no what I, I haven't seen the video but i'll watch it one of the reasons that i'm running is because i actually want to solve problems hey, you know i i, I haven't been a career politician uh, I don't have designs on some other job beyond this. Um, for me, it's just a, a valuable job with an interesting portfolio, and people should take their experience to that job and do the very best they can for, for, for the period of time that the voters allow them to, to serve at that job. I mean, and so when you come up with an idea like that, I haven't looked at it yet, but I want to know more about it because whatever the best idea is, I'm not ideological about these things. I just want to get it done. Excellent. Let's go into one of the biggest crises in the state of California right now, and that's housing. How do yeah. you think we can um, solve it? Before I get into the yeah. housing, there's statistics out there that we're all trying to grab a hold of. How many houses or how many units do we really need to build in the state of California, number one? And number two, we're building housing, more rental housing primarily because the expense of housing, period. Yeah. So. What's your take on it? How many housing units do you think we need in the state of California? And and I'm going to give you a three-part series because I'm going to let you talk your talk <laughs> off a little bit about it. Um, is it the defeat recently of the eight, Proposition eight, 827 or Assembly Bill with Mr. Weiner yeah. um, was it was a strong message that the surrounding uh, cities and counties was not in favor of the the big hammer from the state coming down saying you must yeah. build. So what's your take? What, how, are we gonna, how, how many units do we need? What's your solution for housing? Well, we just passed a, in, in the legislature uh, a bill that would put a you know, healthy amount of money into new housing, $4 billion. On the other hand, uh, when people go back and figure out what that $4 billion will be spent on, the estimates that I've seen are that eight years from now we'll still be about a million units short. 
So uh, part of the reason for that, it's a blessing for the state, is that we're an attractive state to come to. But it means that we're we're creating a lot of jobs without creating any homes in the communities. So you've got people moving here for jobs, and then they can't find a place to live. That means that you do a whole bunch of knock-on effects that are um, that are straining our economy. First, you're making housing just remarkably expensive. You're forcing people to live very far from where they work, and then that adds to traffic congestion and the other issues you were talking about. Um, it means that um, uh, lower-income workers are being driven from the state. They just... You know, and so we lose part of our workforce when we become less productive and it stalls our economic engine. Uh, and I think it also just um, it, it just cuts into our whole notion of what the American dream is, which is that if I work hard, that I'll be able to afford a, a home and have that security of a place that I can invest in and, uh, and own. So there are, as with most things, you know, this is a, this is when a problem is this big and it's been deferred for this long, uh, if it were easy, it would have already been solved. Cause well, can I, so, can I, but I have some thoughts on things. Okay. We can do. I, one question I wanted to kind of interject and back in 2008 and 2006, when we had some pretty deep recession in the state. A lot of people lost their housing. We still had housing problems. One of my passionate things is I went before a board of supervisors in San Mateo County and said, what are we doing with the property that is unincorporated, owned by the state and county? Why are we not using that property to build what we would call either workforce housing or affordable yeah. housing? Because I've never to this day have had any politicians and say, well, this, is, this property in the unincorporated belongs to the state. What are we doing with all the surplus lands that we may have? And I don't know because yeah. I haven't seen their addresses, which is close to quarter transportation places. What do you think we can, can, can we knock on the state door and said, we got a housing crisis and it's land. Yeah. It's land is the issue. Yeah. No, I think first that's a, that's a, a good innovative solution, which is looking at land that's already within the control of the state to see whether or not they can uh, help meet the housing shortage by building there. Another thing is we need to increase housing density. Uh, right now, uh, you're right. Every community says that they want workforce housing, that they want, uh, you know, they want their teachers to be able to live in the community where the students are, know, know what's going on in that community, know what's going on in the students' lives. They want their police officers and their firefighters and their first responders to be in the community and not two hours away if there's an emergency. They want their kids to be able to move home and live near them if they want to continue to be part of the family fabric. Uh, and, you know, in that community, I think there are a whole bunch of reasons why people want it. The problem is they're always saying, well, if I build low income housing here for workforce housing, I'm not going to solve my problem of our firefighters and our police officers and our teachers. I'll be solving the next town over because they're they're well, their people are going to come for over. the audience. Let's distinguish something. And, you know, the public sometimes mix it to workforce housing, um, which is no pure definition, but means nurses and teachers yeah. and. Uh, dentists or lawyers that need to live in that community. When we're seeing the rapid increase, we're losing a lot of those people. And education is important in the state of California. Yeah. And some of the innovative ideas that we're starting to see, uh, like uh, College of San Mateo did uh, teacher housing, uh, Kenyatta College did yeah. it, Stanford did it way back when. What, in your ideas, should we be looking at to keep that 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 middle class working? But we, we want to distinguish between subsidized housing so that everyone in the audience doesn't think we're just building Section 8 housing, but we're building housing for all. Right. Because right now it affects everybody. Yeah. Well, it, at the wages that are paid for most people who are in, uh, in the lines of work that you were describing, um, if you're a nurse or a teacher or a firefighter or a police officer, it's very hard to live in San Francisco. It's very hard to live in Woodside. It's very hard to live in uh, Los Altos and some of the communities that you've been talking about. And so uh, it's not that we're talking about subsidized housing, but we are talking about affordable housing, housing that's affordable to uh, working families who are pursuing those professions that are critical to the community. So uh, that is, that, that's going to be addressed in one of two ways, either creating... Um, uh, 
you know, higher, higher density housing, which is reserved for people in those professions, um, which is at a lower cost, or some form of subsidy in the sense that uh, there are tax credits or other things that make it possible for people to afford to live there, even if their incomes aren't, aren't keeping pace with the uh, cost of living in that, in that community. So there are different ways to, to you know, skin that cat. But well, first, we... you've got to make a commitment right. that you're going to do it. And I think the only way you get that commitment is if you get regional commitments. Every community in the Bay Area, for example, signs up that you know, they, they, will, they will have their plan. We all compare plans. And then you move forward if every other community is willing to move forward with their plans. There could be credits given and swapping and sharing and other things. Uh, among the communities, but it's got to be a regional solution. I just don't see how it works when we expect each community independently to solve this problem because they haven't been, and that's been part of the gridlock. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that's the, the way that a lot of our podcast people think. We have an issue right now with um, all the rapid building that we're doing in the state, um, and we talk about police and fire, and most of the communities of police and fire haven't lived in their communities in the last 20 to 30 years because of the affordability of housing. Yeah. So with that said, let's go into 50% of the operating expenses in most cities are police and fire. And mainly the way that they decide to build a project is based on the ability of police and fire, and we let it impact that. Don't you think that the environmental impact reports that we're currently using in the different counties is not current? Um, I would say with the more density we're building, we are working with something called CERT, Certified Emergency Response Teams, which basically is telling the citizens, your police and fire people may be two to three hours away. You need to defend for yourself. How can we get that environmental impact? Because I feel that the, we're, we're building, we're building, we're building, but we're not taking care of the sewers. We're not taking care of the PG&E issues. And, mm-hmm. and indirectly, we are taking care of the PG&E issues because when they get sued, it comes out of our pockets too. How can we make that infrastructure safer for the people in the state? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I focused on with the Emergency Council, uh, which is, again, a role of lieutenant governor. And uh, I, I'll give you one example that relates. You, you talked about sewers. I'll talk about storm drains, if that's okay. But that's one of those issues. Um, the combination of higher density of, of our population, just more people to, to cover in communities, but also climate change means that we are you know, right now facing a, um, uh, a, a potentially grave water shortage in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, water is now coming down in water bombs and hitting very dry earth. And so instead of penetrating back into aquifers and creating groundwater that we can draw upon again, uh, it is just picking up dirt and chemicals and oils and running into storm drains. And then we have to clean it before it goes into the ocean uh, as, as part of our environmental requirements. But we're not recapturing that water. We're not reusing it. We're not recharging our aquifers. That's with the it. groundwater we're talking yeah. about. The groundwater. Yeah. So you, you would like to think that we should be coming with a, a more aggressive way to, of taking care of that groundwater so we can reuse it. Right. And so this is this is actually an emergency safety issue. Um, we need to adjust our water infrastructure for the new climate and for the new reality of what California is. We still have that old infrastructure. We need catchments. Uh, where you actually, you know, catch the water in pe- you know, people's backyards, uh, catch rainwater. You can do things that allow uh, surfaces to be much more permeable, so water goes back into groundwater. Trees are great for capturing water. We need more in uh, cities. The more trees that you have in cities, the more it cools the pavement, reduces evaporation, and so it holds on to 10 or 20% higher uh, um, precipitation. Uh, because the water doesn't evaporate. These are these are infrastructure choices that need to be made. And they are, I think to most people, when you talk about them, they sound dull and dry, but they are the things that make communities work. That's what gets me excited about them. And, and maybe like I'm a nerd, but right. I think when you talk about how we get our infrastructure right to meet the needs of a of a of a dynamic state that has changed dramatically over the last 50 years, that's what draws me to do this job. 
Well, I can think we can get a lot of new careers out of this and maybe get some people into new careers of, of higher paid salaries. One of the disparities with the housing right now, uh, like we were talking about, is affordability. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to kind of step outside of the box and say, you know, we've got the Microsoft, we've got the Facebook, we've got the Google, we've got everything. You know, it's an amazing. They pay for their food. They pay for their cleaning. They pay for just about everything. They got God, a God dentist in a trailer. In a, in a trailer. <laughs> and now, I know. In, in, in some ways, people would say, you know, that was kind of like socialism or welfare. It's part of the perks. Yeah. So with the situation where we're having the disparity of housing, child care is a real important one to deal with here too. Child care sometimes can go into maybe 30 or 40% of someone's income. Yeah. How do we start to tackle that in a, in, in the state way where that we can help the teachers or the child care? The, the child care rent and all that, is there anything that we can do in the state uh, that you could bring forward to the whoever the new governor is to be a little more innovative? Because I see so many people struggling, yeah. absolutely struggling to pay their child care. And these are not people that are in subsidized housing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, these are working families. In fact, when I started this campaign, I spent a day with an SEIU worker who does uh, child care and looks after uh, other other families' children. And I was there with her in the morning, and families were dropping off their children, and they were basically saying, I couldn't work. I couldn't uh, afford to have our home and to provide if we didn't have a child care worker uh, who was who was who was providing these services and it was a big chunk of their income but it was the only way they could have an income and then the child care worker was working incredibly hard i mean to, to, people started dropping off their children at like six thirty in the morning seven o'clock in the morning she was up we were up at 4.30 preparing the house and everything for it. And then afterward, stayed with her in between cleanup and filling out paperwork and preparing for the next day. Uh, she was going till close to midnight. Uh, these are really hard jobs, and they're not paid very well. And we are all suffering when families can't get child care for their kids. If you look at all the you know, first five studies, K through five, they'll tell you that, if, that, that the, the most important years in terms of preparing young people for success are those early years and we don't have a system in place so Do you think I, we should have some some child care tax credit in the state yes, that would help i think help a child people? care tax credit i think there should be incentives and and um of, of any sort on employers to help promote this i was just down at um spacex where they provide uh they provide child care for all their employees at SpaceX, and I was talking to a mother, and she said that it is it has been transformative. It's life changing, uh, and it has been the fact that she can come to work, know that there is a good space there. She knows where her child is all day. She can she can visit as needed, and not have to worry about that. Can focus on her job. The children get really good care. It, that's yeah, that's good for the employer. It's good for the family. It's good for the state. And why we aren't pushing to incentivize that. Well, I think with these other companies, the Facebook and the Google, they're doing it. Why not the state? Why not the state and somehow to help out? Um, This is a time for you to tell us why. I'm not going to mention any (laughs) any of your candidates. This is a time for you to tell me why are you a better candidate for lieutenant governor than the the other people that are running? Yeah. Uh, Look, I'd say the following things. First, uh, I really want to do this job. Uh, I have the background, skills, experience to do precisely what this job requires. Uh, yeah, I am a little bit nerdy, but I'm proud of that. And I think we need a little more of that in in our policymaking. Uh, on education, I don't think anyone else uh, in the race has, has um, been to Cal State University board meetings. Yeah, I served on the board for six years. Uh, I served for two years as vice chair, and I was chair of the board. Uh, I've spent time on the board of... Uh, one of only three colleges in the United States that has completely need-blind admission and debt-free graduation. I chair the Fulbright Board. Uh, I've taught in some of the toughest high schools in California. I taught at Castlemont and at Balboa High. So, uh, you know, I, I bring 30 years of experience to education decisions, and I've made some of those hard decisions on the boards that I'd be serving on. I just think bringing that experience. Likewise with 
environmental policy. I've been working on environmental policy for 30 years, going back to when I was a college student. You know, I worked at the Conservation Law Foundation. I, I edited the Ecology Law Quarterly. Uh, I, I, Sierra Club said that hands down, I was the best candidate for lieutenant governor because of that, uh, because of that work and experience and uh, what I bring to the table in terms of networks and the capacity to actually drive things to a decision and get stuff done. Uh, it's the reason why President Obama asked me to be his special counsel at the White House and be his U.S. ambassador in Australia and a number of other roles over the course of my life as president of the state bar. Uh, not because I'm the tallest person or the most intimidating, but because I actually like to get stuff done and I work hard and I uh, accomplish things. So I think I think that's it. I bring the experience and accomplishment to the relevant jobs of the um, On behalf of Podcast by the Bay, Jeff, we want to thank you and wish you a good luck on it. Um, you definitely are a dedicated public servant, the state of California, and the voters should be very proud that you're running for election. And we wish you a lot of luck from Podcast by the Bay. Great. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that song. That was an original composition by yours truly, entitled Country Blues. And I featured myself on vocals and guitar. And also on harmonica, we showcased Freddie Boy. 
And so Freddie Boy is playing the harmonica on that. So I hope you enjoy that song. And you can check out that song from the album Colors of Truth on the Highway Soul music page at highwaysoul.com. So you can go in there and click on the link under Colors of Truth, and you'll get right to that song right there. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, have any feedback, please reach out to us and follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay. All right. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.